worship Him in that way, to praise Him for who He is, to thank Him that He rules, that He reigns, to thank Him for His death on the cross that purchased our salvation, and uh, to thank Him for His resurrection, that He's in heaven worshiping, or being worshipped now, and interceding for us. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We praise you that you are the, the name above every name. We thank you for your goodness and your greatness and your glory. Lord, you're high and majestic and, and lifted up. God, we thank you for your grace that you would stoop uh, to become one of us, to come and to suffer and, and, and to die to atone for our sins. And Lord, uh, we acknowledge you as sovereign. God, we struggle with things and we have questions and doubts and we can feel like the world's out of control. Maybe it feels like our lives are out of control. But we know that you rule and reign on your throne, that you, Lord Jesus, are the only thing that's really certain in this world. I pray that you'd help us to, to trust you, to live for you, to live for that which is ultimate and, and eternal and not for that uh, which is fleeting and fading and uh, passing away. Lord, uh, just help us to surrender to you. Lord, as the king of our lives, to bow our knees, to humble ourselves, to submit, to acknowledge you as God and to live like you are God. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for everything you do for us. And God, we pray these things in, in Jesus' name. And I just encourage you, while we remain standing, if you've got a need or something in your life, we just encourage you to take a minute to lift that up to the Lord. Or maybe there's somebody that you're concerned about. I encourage you to pray for them. You know, the purpose of coming to church ultimately is to connect with God, to give Him glory, to worship Him. You know, not just to be here to hear something as a spectator but to actively engage with him. So also ask us, just as a church, to give you something to pray for. You know, in uh, the ministry that we're involved with in Uganda, we've talked some about this in northern Uganda. There's a church planner that's working in a primarily Muslim area. And, um, you know, we're kind of careful what we say just because of being online, because it's already kind of a dangerous situation, but... Uh, the son of an imam was converted a couple weeks ago, was baptized this past Sunday. Uh, he, he's been physically a, a attacked. Um, they've been threatened. Some different things that have happened. And um, just to ask you to pray uh, for the pastor and his family, his safety, for this convert, uh, for his family, for God's protection, for him to, to stay strong. But just for God to use this for the sake of the gospel, that just as a witness to, the, to that community, that uh, this would even be a, a, a turning point in the life of that uh, church plant, and uh, just something that, that God would use to build his kingdom, to reach people. Um, you know, it's a little hard for us to relate to, but you know, it kind of makes... A lot of passages in the Bible, even like what we're going to look at in Daniel 3 next week, uh, kind of seem a little bit more real, I think. 
Father, we do pray, God, for all these involved in this situation. Lord, we ask that you would protect them if that's your will. But God, we also know that sometimes you use persecution and suffering for the uh, advancement of the gospel, for the proclamation of your name. And so, God, I pray, Lord, more than anything, that you would strengthen and build the faith of those who are being uh, oppressed. God, that you would use their witness, and Lord, that there would just be a breaking of the stronghold of this false religion in that area, that many people would be saved, that there would be a church planning movement that would begin in this place and that would spread throughout northern Uganda, that even unreached people groups, God, would be reached. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be strong and firm and, and to not compromise and to be willing to pay a price to honor you, to live for you, to make the gospel known. Father, I pray that you forgive us when we do compromise. Lord, forgive us of our sins. God, I pray that you convict us. Lord, that you build conviction into us about what's really important. And God, that you give us the strength to live out what we say we believe. God, we acknowledge that we're weak. We ask for your forgiveness and cleansing. We pray that you fill us with your spirit. God, I pray... Lord, for people who don't know you, that uh, God should give them faith, that they'd see who Jesus is and trust him, surrender to him. Lord, speak to us through your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Welcome. Really good to see you. Good to be back with you. Uh, if you're a guest, if you're new, we're really glad uh, that you are here. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we've got about 49 verses to cover today in about 40 to 45 minutes. So uh, you'll have to listen well. But here's the good news. Uh, we pretty much sang my sermon this morning. So when you forget what I say, hopefully you'll remember the songs and uh, it, it, it'll be good. But uh, so a couple weeks ago, we started Daniel. Last Sunday was Youth Sunday. And so the title of the series is The World Seems Out of Control, But... And today we're going to talk about is the world seems out of control, but God's kingdom reigns forever. So uh, sometimes people become obsessed with wanting to know the future. When I was younger, I used to think I wanted to know the future. I think the older I get, the, the less I really feel that way. But, uh, I mean, uh, people can really become obsessed with wanting to know the future. Uh, for example, there's a uh, psychologist named Stephen Benning at the University of Nevada who said, uh, talked about the, the interest in astrology is rising. And he said maybe this is because, quote, having a method of making sense of what might otherwise seem chaotic and uncontrollable would be appealing. Uh, this same article talked about a 2016 study which says that like uncertainty about a possible outcome, a negative outcome, can actually be more stressful or cause more anxiety than actually learning a negative outcome. And, and I can relate to that. I think I struggle more with anxiety just waiting to find out what's going to happen with something than any other way. You know, I think I can struggle more with that than even actually uh, getting bad news. And, and so... Um, you know, we rightly wonder what the future holds. Again, sometimes people can be obsessed with that. But I actually think that it's much better to focus on who holds the future instead of what the future holds. 
And so what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 2 is that God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Then he gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And then we see the fulfillment of it in history. Danny Aiken describes this chapter as, quote, a God who is absolutely sovereign in what he knows, which is omniscience, and what he will do, which is omnipotence. This God knows the future, has a plan for the future, and will accomplish that future. A good summation of this in Scripture is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, which says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And David Jeremiah says of this, you may not know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. Since the whole world is in God's hands, your world is in God's hands. Now, what we're going to see this morning, really, is the big picture, and that's what we're going to focus on, of the eternal reign of the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to get maybe into some more prophetic details later in Daniel, but really I'm not going to try to get into all the weeds of that, particularly today. I just want to give you the big picture of what's going to last. So, what we're going to do is we're just kind of going to walk through the story that's told here in this chapter. A lot of it will just read. I'll, I'll kind of pause here and there to give some background or maybe a little bit of an application or that kind of thing. Then we'll do what we did a couple of weeks ago, and I'll give a conviction, and action, uh, and, and some Christ connections in this. You remember in Daniel chapter 1, the, the conviction that we talked about is that the world seems out of control, but God is actually in control, and he's raising up people to make a difference in the world. And the action then that flows out of that is that we will live with biblical conviction instead of compromise and conforming to the culture so that God can use us to make a difference in the culture. So, Let's start reading Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his, so, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And, uh, you know, in the ancient world, people believed that God, the gods spoke through the dreams. So this would not have been uncommon. But, but think about it. The most powerful man in the world was scared of his dreams. I think that shows us how much of an illusion that control actually is. And, and so, it, because of this, verse 2 says, the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know uh, the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And it's interesting in the book of Daniel, starting in this verse through the end of chapter 7, it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic as far as, as the original writing of it. Then it switches back to Hebrew. But, but they, they said to the king, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, catch that? And its interpretation. So what he's saying is, I'm not going to tell you the dream for you to interpret it. you got to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Now, why would he have done that? 
because if, he, if they didn't tell him the dream too, they could have just given him any interpretation. How's he going to know if it's true or not? That's his thinking, but that was the hand of God behind that because it would have shown him when Daniel actually ends up telling him the dream that his interpretation was reliable as well. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's scared, and, and fear tends to produce anger, and he, he, you know, he seems to have a temper problem anyway when you read the book. So uh, it's like, if, notice what he said, if you don't tell me the dream, you're going to be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream uh, and its interpretation. And so they, you know, the, these wise men answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. In other words, they were stalling, they knew he wasn't playing around, they're trying to save their lives. Uh, and so he says, you don't make known the dream to me. There's only one decree uh, for you. For you have decreed, or you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked uh, such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, they're getting close there, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So he wasn't bluffing. He's very serious about what he said he was going to do. And so it says, verse 13, that the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So wherever they were, um, you know, now they're looking for them. And then verse 14, and we, and we talked about this last time. You know, uh, if, if, if you're faithful in the small things, then you're prepared to be faithful in bigger things. You know, they stood with the, the test of eating stuff. Now, it's truly a life or death matter. And just like he did in chapter 1, it says, With counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch. And apparently, he had a connection to this man. And, and I would just say this. You know, we talked about, about being difference makers last time. If we want to be difference makers, we better be relationship builders. And, and, and you see that in their lives. And so Arioch was the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And he must have had more confidence in Daniel, maybe than the other wise men, because God's hands on him, so he agreed to this. And so uh, it says, then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now, what would be the significance of uh, it being revealed to him in a night vision? 
be a dream also, which what would be the significance of that? He was sleeping, which what would be the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, his, his life's being threatened, and he went to sleep. Nebuchadnezzar's freaking out over his dreams. These guys are at peace even when their lives are being threatened. That They responded with wisdom and with prayer. That They took it to the Lord. God answered their prayer. God revealed this to them. And the, and the last part of verse 19 uh, says, So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, literally in Aramaic, it's the God of heavens. And it's so important that it's used five times in this chapter. And, and what would be the significance of it? A man by the name of Bob Fial points points it out this way. He says, not by horoscopes, seances, and divination would enlightenment come, but from the God of heaven. This is not simply the tribal God of Israel, but the God who rules the heavenly bodies of which the study and attempt to manipulate lay at the heart of the Babylonian religion. So the God of, of heaven. And, and so here's Daniel's response. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. So God answered their prayer. What's the first thing he did? He worshiped. How often does God answer our prayers and we just kind of move along with life and, and, and take it for granted instead of being thankful? I'm guilty of that. Uh, so he responds, they respond uh, with, with worship. Uh, you know, bless the name of God. It says, wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. He says, I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have known, made known to us the king's demand. Um, and so, again, it's more important when we're facing difficult situations. More important than the what of the circumstances is the who of God's character that's in control of the circumstances. Danny Aiken uh, writes of this little section. He says, Daniel acknowledges seven aspects of God's character and activity. Specifically, he praises God for his eternality, his omniscience and omnipotence, his sovereignty over the nations, and I would add, really, the history of the world itself as he talks about times and seasons, his gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, his revelation and knowledge, his faithfulness to his people, and for answering Daniel's prayer. And he says, in light of this magnificent picture of God's goodness and greatness, we can exclaim with Daniel and all our brothers and sisters, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so, then picking up in verse 24, it says, Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and, and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then uh, Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found, it's kind of funny, he didn't exactly find him, but, you know, I guess that's a good thing to say to the king. I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So here, here you see Daniel again being a difference maker, speaking truth to power, speaking, testifying of God before the most powerful man in, in, in the world. And so he says, this is what's going to be in the latter days. Uh, your dream and the, vision of your, uh, uh, the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass uh, after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known, uh, but for our sakes who make known um, the, the interpretation to the king and that, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So we see Daniel here giving the Lord uh, credit and you know we should follow his example. We don't we can't do anything that God doesn't allow or enable us to do in Proverbs. You know the Bible tells us to not praise ourselves but let someone else praise us. And so all that's kind of the setup. And now Starting in verse 31, this is really the heart of the story, the heart of the chapter, as Daniel reveals to him the dream and its interpretation. So, here's what he says. He says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone, an important phrase, was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. What a powerful phrase. These great kingdoms carried away so that not even a trace of them was found. And it says, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So the first kingdom, he says here, very clearly, is Babylon. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we can specifically, from the text, identify, if you read the whole book of Daniel, four of the five kingdoms that were mentioned in the dream. The fourth one, uh, there's some speculation too, but, but the others are specifically named in the text. And named, in, in, in two, really two of them are, are, that were, took place in history. The second and the third were named in advance of their rise. And you know, we'll get into that in a few chapters, but you know, read the book for yourself, it's there. Verse 39, but after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. 
And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet in the strength of the iron, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall partly be strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and shall consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel told him the dream. He gave him its interpretation. But this is how I want us to think about it. Again, We'll get into more of the details of what these kingdoms are as they're developed later in the book. But I really like the, the analogy that John Aiken uses of this. He calls this the big E on the eye chart. Right? Now, you know an eye chart, right? Uh, you know, you got the 2020 line that, that, that's little. The, the E is the 2200 line. And sometimes we can get so in the weeds when it comes to, you know, stuff like this in the Bible, Daniel and, and Revelation and those kind of books, that we miss the big picture, the main point of what God is actually saying. And I'm encouraging us, I'm not saying don't study that kind of stuff, I'm just saying let's not get so caught up in uh, prophetic speculation that we miss the main message, that we miss the life message here. Um, I've worn glasses since like late elementary school, and the way that we figured out that we needed uh, that I needed glasses is one time we were coming back from I think it was Florida, but somewhere on vacation, and there was a I don't know if you remember Buster Brown shoe stores. There was a Buster Brown delivery truck in front of us, and for some random reason I don't even remember why my parents asked me to read the back of the truck with the huge lettering uh, on it. And uh, I couldn't read it. So that's how blindly nearsighted that I am uh, without my glasses. I mean, I don't know what that would have translated to on the eye chart. But, I mean, I couldn't even read. This is way bigger than the big E on an eye chart. And, and I couldn't read it. And it just like I was blinded to what was right in front of me. And I think a lot of times as Christians, when we read these kind of sections of the Bible, we are blinded to what is right in front of us. We are blinded to what's most important important to us, I'm encouraging us to focus on the big E here, and the big E is that every earthly kingdom is going to pass away, but only the kingdom of God is going to last forever, so let's live for what's eternal instead of what's temporary and transient. That's the big E on, on the eye chart. You see, there's five kingdoms that are spoken of here, four earthly kingdoms, the fifth is the kingdom of God, the heavenly kingdom. But, but in a sense, I mean, now he's certainly talking about specific earthly kingdoms. But when you study Babylon in the Bible, Babylon is a picture of every earthly kingdom that's going to fall. 
And, and so again, the issue is not even so much these specific kingdoms, which the first one is Babylon, the second is Medo-Persia, the third is Greece. All three of these are specifically uh, named in the book of Daniel, if you read the whole thing. Most evangelical Bible commentators believe the fourth one refers to the Roman Empire, and then there's reference to some revived form of this as he talks about uh, the Antichrist uh, later on. But the point is, every earthly kingdom at some point is going to be like chaff that there's no trace of. That's the story of the history of the world. Honestly, it'll be the story of our country at some point. So, again, don't live for what's earthly. Live for what's e eternal. Uh, the ESV Study Bible gives a really helpful note in summarizing this. It, it says, another point being made in the dream is that each earthly kingdom has its own glory, but also its own end. That's what it's saying. Each earthly kingdom has its own glory, but also its own end. Both have been assigned by God. The progression of world history is typically not upward to glory and unity, but rather downward to dishonor and disunity. Thus, the statue progresses from gold to silver to bronze to iron, and from one head to a chest and arms to a belly and thighs to feet and toes of composite iron and clay. You see the digression instead of progression? In contrast, God's kingdom grows from humble beginnings, think about the parables of Jesus, to ultimate united glory as a single kingdom that fills the whole earth forever. The stone that will break in pieces, the, the stone uh, made without human hands, cut from the mountain, the stone that will break in pieces, all these other four kingdoms is Christ. Now, let's read the last four verses here, and then we'll talk about conviction and action. And so, Daniel revealed the dream, revealed its interpretation. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering in incense to him. And we'll come back to this at the end, but don't be confused. This is not Nebuchadnezzar being converted. This is not him entering into a relationship with Yahweh, at least not yet. In the next chapter, he's going to build an idol to himself. He's not saved if we want to use that kind of terminology. But God's working, because it says the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. Of course, he's more than that. You know, you can't add Jesus to your list of deities, whether they be functional or actual. He has to be God alone in your life to actually have a relationship with him. But he calls him a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And it says the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the fairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat, sat in the gate of the king. He was like in the inner circle. So God can use even pagan rulers, to give his people favor. But again, this is going to lead into chapter 3, and it's going to be short-lived because oppression and persecution is, is coming. But we see, again, God using Daniel to make a big difference. David Helms writes of these verses, Daniel's God now shares the stage with the Babylonians' deities. Given what we know of Nebuchadnezzar's religiosity, this is truly amazing. 
the one who had been named for Babylon's deity of wisdom and prayed to Marduk at his, at his coronation only one year previously, now gave space to a competing deity and even offered public words of praise to him. For the first time in Nebuchadnezzar's life, Marduk had competition in his interior world. All because one godly man remained poised, prayerful, and willing to speak truth to power. How could God use us as one man or one woman today? He wants to use us to make a difference. So, that's kind of the overview of all this. But what do we do with it personally? So here's the conviction that I think, again, kind of the big E on the eye chart, what we can glean from this, and it's very simply this. God's kingdom reigns forever, but every earthly kingdom falls. God's kingdom reigns forever, but every earthly kingdom falls. Babylon did, Medo-Persia did, Greece did. The Roman Empire did. Again, it's the story of the history of the world, and it will be until Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Uh, the rise and fall of nations and empires. You uh, too put it this way in their song, October, and kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you go on and on. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but you go on and and on. That's the story. Uh, that's what Daniel chapter 2 is saying in a sentence. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, what do we mean? I mean, if this is going to be our conviction, and really, this is something that, that we have to make a decision about what do we believe, and it's really going to affect our lives. Because what do we believe is really going to last? What do we believe is ultimate? What are we really going to live for? What are we going to put our hope and our trust in? Listen, I'm not saying, as I say all this, don't, that we don't owe some allegiance to our country, that we shouldn't be patriotic and those kind of things. But if kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but Jesus goes on and on, why would we put our hope and our trust in a government or a nation or a ruler, or a president, or any person, or anything, or anyone on this earth. When we talk about the kingdom of God, here's at least three things that we're saying. First of all, Jesus is king, and he reigns over all. Psalm 2 puts it this way. God speaking through uh, the psalmist says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, talking about Jesus. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what Jesus is going to do. The Bible says, that God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, and that someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the, the Father. Of course, I, I don't know, but it's reported that Queen Elizabeth uh, you know, was, was a uh, Christian. And if she was, when she got to heaven, she laid her crown at the feet of Jesus. But for those, you know, uh, even rulers on the earth who reject 
Jesus, the most evil, someday are going to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is King. But here's our problem. One of my favorite quotes, one of the most perceptive things I've ever heard anybody say, Mark Sayer says that our problem is that we're looking for the kingdom without the king. We're looking for the kingdom without the king. What does he mean? Well, the Bible pictures the kingdom of God when when Jesus comes back as a time of love and peace and harmony. You know, the lion lays down uh, with the lamb. You know, it's unity. There's justice. Everything is set right. You know, we can live together in, in harmony. There's no war. All the things we're looking for. But the point is, you can't have the things of the kingdom without having the king. And in our sinful hearts, in our rebellion, that this is the story under the story of human history. As we've tried to be our own king, and we've lived for ourselves, and tried to do it our own way, we grasp for these things, but we actually end up repelling these things. We create the opposite of these things, because we're sinners... And we can't have the kingdom without the king. If you want to have peace and joy and hope and life and love and unity, it comes through Jesus Christ, not from our self-effort to get there. And that's true individually, and that's true corporately in the world. And I think human history verifies that fact. So when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the fact that Jesus is king. Second, we're talking about the fact that the nature of the kingdom is God's reign and his restoration of individuals in the world. Uh, Chuck Colson, or sorry, the Bible dictionary defines kingdom as a ruler's sphere of authority. Chuck Colson writes that the kingdom of God is a rule, not a realm. It's the declaration of God's absolute sovereignty, of his total order of life in this world and the next. You know, when we think about a kingdom, we usually think, geographical, right? This is our nation. These are the borders. These are the boundaries. But the idea of the kingdom of God is it's God's reign. It's his rule. It's the fact that he's king over all, you know, universally of the world, particularly in the hearts, the lives of those who are trusting him and are following him. But when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the fact, really we're talking about salvation, You can't separate salvation and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's restoration of us as individuals and then the restoration of his created world. See, people debate in the book of Daniel when it's it's talking about, you know, the kingdom coming. Is it talking about the first coming of Jesus or is it talking about the second coming of Jesus? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, I, I, I think you can look at the, the kingdom of God coming as like two mountain peaks with a valley in between. Uh, you know, the first peak was when Jesus came the first time. The second peak is when Jesus comes back the second time. We're in the valley in, in between. But in this valley, what's he doing? He's restoring lives. And the church is designed to be a kingdom outpost that he works through to bring restoration to the world. In other words, we as Christians, we as the church, are to be a picture of the coming kingdom. Do do people see in us love and justice and and, and peace and harmony and unity and, and joy? If so, we're pointing to the coming kingdom. But if not, we're actually pointing to the kingdom of darkness instead of the kingdom of light. We're called to make a difference. You see, the, 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 God's kingdom has three aspects. 
there's the past aspect when Jesus came and the king was literally here the first time. But he didn't come in his glory then. He came as the suffering servant then. There's the future aspect when he comes back in his glory as king of kings, lord of lords, to defeat his enemies, to triumph, to rule, to reign, to set everything right, to actually establish his kingdom on the earth. But right now, God's kingdom is in his people. God's kingdom is in your heart because the king is in your heart. And he's ruling and he's reigning over you. And and, and there's a battle going on between the kingdom of light and and the kingdom of darkness. And he's here, he has us here to use us in that. Now, think about this. And, And this, I think, answers a question that we commonly have. This means that the kingdom is already here, and it's not yet here. That sounds like a contradiction, maybe. Does it make sense? The kingdom's here because it's in us, but it's not here in all of, his fu- uh, in all of its fullness because Jesus, the king, isn't seated on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning over the whole earth yet. Now, what does that mean practically, though? Well, here's the question that it answers. We ask the question, we read something like this. And, and, and you maybe hear somebody talk like this, and I wrestle with this question too. Like if, if God is sovereign, if he holds the future, if he's in control of everything, if Jesus is king, if he rules and reigns, why, are, why is stuff so messed up? Why does the world seem out of control? Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, part of the answer to that relates to what we're talking about with the kingdom. Christopher Morgan writes, and he answers the question this way. Listen to this. I think this helps us. Jesus proclaims and brings God's kingdom in a context of strenuous opposition, chiefly from Satan. Think about it. Was Jesus' life a bed of roses? I mean, was just everything smooth and easy? Was he mistreated? Was there opposition? Was there temptation? Should we expect it to be any different for us then? The kingdom comes, he says, but neither instantly nor peacefully. And it comes through destroying every rule and power, through putting enemies uh, under his feet, through putting all things in subjection to him, through conflict and conquest, over the kingdom of Satan. You see, Jesus won that victory on the cross, but he's not consummating that victory completely until he returns. He says, indeed, creation is presently subject to conflicting realities, one that's not eternal and one that is. Evil in its tyranny is real and destructive, but temporary. God's rule is universal, but still in the process of bringing evil to an end. So the world is in this conflict. It, it's, a conf, it's a conflict of kingdoms. It's a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom uh, of light. And, and that's the story underneath the story. That's what's behind everything. That's what's going on in the spiritual realm. That's why the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities and powers and rulers of this darkness in in wicked places. Ephesians uh, 6, 12. That's what's going on. You know what I've talked about, what we prayed for in northern Uganda? It's kingdoms in conflict. Listen, Muslims aren't our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
they're trying to hold on to something, and uh, they're, they're trying, uh, you know, to preserve their religion, and they do it, you know, sometimes in the wrong ways, like what's happening here. But really what is going on there is it's a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And that's why we don't fight these battles ultimately with flesh and blood weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down uh, imaginations and bringing every thought into captivity. Listen, are are you trying to fight the battles of your life? Are you trying to make a difference through carnal methods or through spiritual methods? Are we trusting God? Are we praying? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we living the kingdom? Are are we living to build his kingdom? That's how God's going to use us to make a difference. And I believe that the church in the United States has lost sight of that. We're relying on carnal methods and carnal men and women. Listen, laws and politics and government are important, but some of you are putting your hope in men, and they are always going to let you down. Is our conviction really that every earthly kingdom is going to pass away and God's kingdom is going to stand forever? If it is, this is the action that we're called to take. That is, we will live to build the kingdom of God instead of the kingdoms of man. We will live to build the kingdom of God instead of the kingdoms of man. So what's that look like practically? Well, number one, it means that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus in his kingdom. Not saying it's our only allegiance, but it's our ultimate allegiance. He's Lord. And is he the Lord? Is he the king of our life? Does he have our ultimate allegiance? Listen, you know, salvation is not just praying a prayer and getting a fire insurance policy. It's Jesus being the Lord, the king, the God of our lives. Second, it would mean that our ultimate purpose is glorifying God through the building of his kingdom. See, our life doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. It's not ultimately about us. It's about our king. We're not here to build our own little empires. We're here to build the kingdom of God. That's all that's going to last. Augustine put it this way. He says, that which man builds, man destroys. But the city of God is built by God and cannot be destroyed by man. And when he's talking about the city of God, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Bob Roberts has said, the kingdom of God is a radical message meant to be lived out in radical lives, which then historically and culturally have radical results. Listen, we can't say we really believe that God's kingdom is eternal and it not affect the way that we live our lives. What are we living for? Who are we living for? Third, this means that we live with hope, looking forward to the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom and simultaneously live to make a difference by praying and laboring for people to become part of his kingdom. Now, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a long sentence. Who wrote that? Um, but there's something to it. 
okay? It means in the future, if this is true, that this is where our hope is. Now, see, we think hope as like a hope-so kind of thing. Like, I hope something works out, or I hope I, I get this. Uh, you know, some of you, your hopes were realized yesterday when the UT actually beat Florida in, in, in a football game. But, uh, you know, that was a very tenuous hope-so kind of thing, right? It's something we want to happen, but there's no guarantee of it happening. And, and so we can have a lot of hopes for the future. We can hope the economy gets better. Uh, we, we can hope that the world's a better place for our kids and our grandkids and, you know, go down through the list. There's no guarantee. Biblical hope, though, is not a hope-so kind of thing. It's a settled conviction that God is going to do this, and we know he's going to do it because Jesus rose from the dead. Do you have that kind of hope for the future? If Jesus rose from the dead, we can hope for the future knowing that he's going to come back. He's going to come back. He's going to set up his kingdom. All this earthly junk is going to pass away, and he is going to rule and reign forever, and that is what the future holds. And so we can hope in that, rest in that, trust in that. We can live more like Daniel than Nebuchadnezzar, that we don't have to freak out and, and, and live in fear. We can trust and, and, and pray and, and, and work for the kingdom of God. But listen, hoping in the future and prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation and other books in the Bible weren't ultimately written for prophetic speculation. They were written to reveal Jesus Christ. In his glory, majesty, power, and strength. Listen, you ever thought about this? And, and, and I'm not saying I don't have convictions and opinions about, you know, prophecy and those kind of things. And you probably hear a little bit of that in this series. You ever thought about this? I mean, people get into, you know, all this kind of crazy speculation with the book of Revelation. Anybody remember how the book of Revelation starts? Yeah, it literally starts the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the point. We can hope in that for the future, but if we hope in that for the future, what it means in the moment, if the kingdom is coming but it's already here, we're to live to build the kingdom of God. What's it mean to live to build the kingdom of God? We pray, we labor, we serve, we meet needs, we help people, we, we uh, you know, bring uh, work for justice and truth, and we love people, and, and we share the gospel with people, and all of us have that responsibility. I was listening to a podcast uh, while we were traveling, and this podcast I like called For the Church. And on this podcast, Jared Wilson was interviewing Ed Stetzer. And one of the things Ed Stetzer does, he's the director of the Billy Graham Center at, the, um, at, at Wheaton uh, University. And, and Jared Wilson uh, asked uh, Ed Stetzer this question. He said, who's the next Billy Graham? And Ed Stetzer said, Jane the Uber driver. And uh, Jared Wilson literally said, who? <laughs> and so he went on to explain that uh, him and his wife were in some city and uh, the, the night before Billy Graham died. And they were in an Uber. The driver's name was Jane. And um, basically, the long story short, and they just kind of played along with it for a bit before he told her who he was, what he did. 
But Jane, the Uber driver, shared the gospel with Ed Stetzer and his wife. Billy Graham died the next day. The next week, the New York Times interviewed Ed Stetzer and asked, who's the next Billy Graham? He said, Jane, the Uber driver. And what he, then he explained what it literally meant is the next Billy Graham is all of us. Every believer. We're here to build the kingdom of God. We're here to share the gospel. We're here to serve people. We're here to meet needs. And so many of you are doing this, and this is what God's called us to do. If we believe in the kingdom and it's eternal, it affects how we live now. So this is why we adopt kids. This is why we advocate for the unborn. This is why we serve the poor and and, and the homeless and the needy. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we give. This is why... Uh, we plant churches. This is why we're ministering in Uganda. This is why we're ministering in Honduras. Because God's kingdom is coming. It's, it's eternal. It's all that's going to last. But it's here in us now. And it needs to be lived out through us. And then fourth, and I kind of already alluded to this, is that we can walk by faith in our sovereign king and live in peace knowing that he's in control. And, and what do I mean by that? What do I mean, what I mean by that is that, just kind of what I said, Nebuchadnezzar freaked out, Daniel was at peace. I mean, this convicted me. I mean, you know, I, I, I think about how, you know, kind of freaked out, you know, about when COVID hit, and like what's going to happen with the church and all these kind of things, and we're going to be able to afford to pay people, and, you know, and our giving's grown by hundreds of thousands of dollars a year since COVID, and we've grown as a church, and all these kind of things. God's in control, but we so easily forget that. I mean, if we really believe that God is in control, he's king. Our reaction is going to look more like Daniel than Nebuchadnezzar. But when our reactions to difficult circumstances look like Nebuchadnezzar instead of Daniel, it's a clue that we're not really trusting that God's in control. Let me finish with the Christ connections here. A couple things. Jesus is the King of kings who is coming to rule and reign. Revelation chapter 19 Uh, We see here that he's coming on a white horse, and for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but verse 16 says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to rule and reign. The Bible also teaches us, you know, it talks about the rock here. Jesus is the rock on which we're to build our lives. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8 calls him the chief uh, cornerstone. It says, uh, verse 7, the stone which the builders uh, rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Since they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. And so he- here's the thing that you got to decide today. Is Jesus going to be the cornerstone of your life that you're going to build on? Or is he going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? Because he's going to be one or the other. I mean, when, when someone is claiming to be God and Lord and King and saying they rose from the dead, there's not a lot of middle ground. Is he going to be the cornerstone or is he going to be a stone of stumbling? He said, if you're a wise man, you'll build your house on, on, on obedience to me and it'll stand against the storms of life. But if you're a foolish man, you're going to build with a foundation of stand, sand. You're not going to obey me. You're, you're not going to follow me. And, and the storms of life are going to wash your life away. Listen. 
the ultimate application of this for us, if we're Christians, would be to build our life on the rock of obedience to the King of kings and Lord of lords, live for his eternal kingdom, live with the conviction that we're here to build his kingdom, live for what's ultimate, live for what's eternal, not what's earthly, live for what is going to outlast us, and then get to heaven and and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your reward. Do we believe that he's in control? Do we believe that he knows the future, that he holds the future, that he's orchestrating the future? Do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do we believe that he's God and King and Lord? If so, let's live like it. And let's tell other people about it. Listen, if you're not a Christian, John 3.3, Jesus said to a very religious man, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar experienced a miracle, but he wasn't converted. I mean, he even gave praise to Daniel's God. But he didn't see him as God alone, and he didn't surrender to him. That's part of what it takes to be born again. See, being born again is a supernatural miracle. It's a working of God in your heart where he gives you a new heart, where you are convicted of your sin and repentant of your sin, and you bring your sin to him, and you ask forgiveness, and you trust Jesus as Lord, God, and King, relying on him and him alone, nothing, nobody else. He is your only God. It's only through what he did on the cross that you can be saved, and you are trusting in him and his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's how you're born again. That's how you can see and enter into the kingdom of God. That's how the kingdom of God can be in your heart. That's how you can have a true, eternal hope. Are you trusting in Christ? Have you bowed your knee to him? Is he your Lord and God and King? Let's bow our heads and and, and close our eyes.